Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris. It's good to be with you again today. Today's episode is called Covenant with Your Eyes, and I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. But a quick show note, I wanted to mention that I am currently doing a really big project, one of the biggest, well, the biggest of my career. It's scheduled to at least take three, probably four to five more months to complete. I'm not really sure I wanted to mention what it is until maybe even up until it's released. I am only bringing up this now to let you know that it may explain why my future podcast release schedule is a little bit lower than even normal for the next few months, in case you're wondering. I haven't fallen off the face of the earth. In fact, I'm working harder than I ever have before and just wanted to let you know that in case you were wondering. All right, so this podcast is called Covenant with Your Eyes, which is a reference to the book of Job, chapter 31, verse 1, which says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? This is Job, who you know the story. Job was a righteous man, was pointed out by God saying, have you seen Job? He's really righteous. And Satan says, oh, he's only righteous because you've blessed him. And God says, well, have Adam and let's see what he does. And Job uh, doesn't sin. And it, it is an opportunity really for Job to say some things that hopefully I'll get into at the end of this podcast, because there's sort of a separate thread here where I've been just absolutely blown away by the book of Job recently. Um, like what was Job's reason for being so righteous in the face of all this or in the first place? What was motivating Job? Why didn't he uh, uh, sin and and some other things that I think are interesting. So we'll get into that. But for the moment, let's talk about this covenant with his eyes. I think that there is broad agreement among theologians that the covenant with his eyes that Job is speaking of is roughly parallel to what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 5, 26 through 30, where he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This idea of a covenant, which is a strong agreement, like an unbreakable agreement, kind of like a marriage, especially in the old uh, way, would be kind of like the modern equivalent of saying, look, uh, no matter what, I'm not going to look at any women, I'm not. If I see them walking down the road, or I see uh, in scrolling social media, or anything, and obviously, certainly not porn or anything like that. Like I am, if I, you can't help but see them initially. That's temptation, but that second look, that is sin. And what it is is saying that no matter what, there is no cheat day. There is no. I'm making a covenant, a strong agreement an unbreakable agreement as far as I'm concerned that I will not look at a woman ever again for my entire life. I mentioned in a recent podcast, the one entitled Why I No Longer Believe and One Saved Always Saved, as well as my testimony of backsliding, that I made a similar covenant with my eyes to never look upon a woman other than my wife with lust ever again. It was sort of a package deal with my quitting drinking, which was sort of my main problem. Um, And I wanted to give you an update on that because I think it would be interesting to me because 
me before me for the last, you know, 10 years or something like that, that me really wouldn't have believed me now that it was possible. And I would like to hear some details about how it's going. So I wanted to sort of live with it for a few more months and to just really make sure where it was all going and to sort of see the patterns and to uh, to at least hear the initial pitfalls and lies that Satan threw at me at the beginning so that I can report back to you and do a number of things. Number one, tell you that it's possible and that it gets easier, not harder, just like it does with every other sin that you quit completely. Um, and that it, you know, and to sort of give you some of the the warnings and things that to uh, to expect early on. The first thing I want to talk about is this idea that it is impossible for a man to do this, that it is impossible for a man to never look on a woman with lust in his heart ever again his entire life. Because I would have told you it was impossible. I'm sure many of you out there are thinking the same thing. And on the one hand, you are completely right. If, for example, there has been a lot of quenching or grieving of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you know what that was like and now you don't have that anymore, it is impossible for you. It really is. So you're right to say it's impossible. You're you're just not believing that power is available. Because you may remember what it was like to have power, but I'm telling you that I got the power back. In my testimony, I talked about how when I finally did repent with alcohol, even though it had been hundreds of times of me quitting and starting and quitting and starting, quitting and starting, when I finally repented, it was real power. Like that first two weeks, I was looking around like, this is easy. This isn't like before. This isn't even me trying. This is like a gift. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm here to tell you that that power exists and gets easier, not harder. You would think that it's kind of like trying to hold a beach ball under water. You know, you can hold it under for so long, but then eventually it, it lets go. But it's completely not like that. The the more that you do, you you resist the devil, he will flee from you. That's the real pattern. It gets easier, but you can't dabble. You cannot give a single inch to sin. It has to be teetotaling. And Satan has a million different ways to tell you, oh, don't go teetotaling. You can do a little bit. You can have it a little bit here on special occasions or this thing or that thing. All the little things that he does, most of what Satan is doing to you is telling you that you can't, you're special, that you can have a cheat day, a special occasion with your sin. But that pattern always opens the door to now it's just a matter of time before you do it again. So the teetotaling, the decision to make a covenant, that's the secret. I recently read a book by Dr. Michael Brown about food called Breaking Strongholds. And I think that the interesting thing that he makes about that is he's not necessarily saying that food is a sin in the same way that sin's a sin, but he is saying that that pattern exists with cheat days, like real, you know, if you have a cheat day, then you will have another cheat day. You know, you will basically fall off the diet. That's why no diet ever works. So, unless you can come up with a, a, a menu of some kind that you can agree, I will only eat this like this for the rest of my life. There is no cheat day that you can stay on and it will get easier. But if you give yourself that cheat day, 
then it's basically call it over. So what I'm trying to say is that the covenant with your eyes, the very idea that you will never do it again is the repentance. The other thing that I would say to somebody that believed that it was impossible is, well, what about Job? Job was able to do it and he didn't even have the Holy Spirit. I will argue later that Job had a unique understanding of hell and Job Job was very scared of hell. And that is why he decided to live a righteous life at all costs. So, but he was able to do even this most difficult thing, make a covenant with your eyes. And he was able to do it without the Holy Spirit. So, so you can too. In fact, you have the same reason to do this that Job did, which is hell, eternal torment is on the line. So Jesus pointed out only a few sins and said, this one is going to make you go to hell. And one of those sins is not doing this, which Jesus equates with adultery, just point blank. Matthew 5, 26 through 30 says, you shall, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So at this point, some of you are really thinking, Oh, Chris, you have gone off the deep end. Not only are you saying that this new radical thing of deciding to never look at a woman with lust in your heart for the rest of your life is possible. You're saying it's required not to go to hell and that if I don't do it, that's likely my destination. That's what you're saying, that baseline Christianity is that I have to also make a covenant with my eyes like Job or that hell is on the line. I would say, don't look at me, look exactly at the New Testament first, and then look at the early church who believed exactly that. And they didn't even think it was that big of a deal. It was baseline Christianity in the same way that a Christian, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, well, now you can't worship idols and now you can't go visit prostitutes and now you can't look at women with lust in your heart. These are just non-negotiable things to them because it's non-negotiable in the New Testament. So I would further say, if you can just take the one premise, if you can just believe Jesus on one point, believe him on this idea that he thinks that looking at a woman with lust in your heart is the same thing as adultery. Like, there's no out there. So if that's true, how many times, what, what do you think about the sin of adultery? You think it's bad, right? Like you think that you probably can't go on committing adultery over and over, that something bad is likely to happen. Even if you believe in once saved, always saved, you probably think that's not going anywhere good. My point is, think of that one premise that it, that's the same thing as adultery. And now think of the way that you think of other similar sins like homosexuality. How much different is the sin of homosexuality and the sin of adultery in your mind? Are they vastly different or are they pretty much the same? And what would you counsel a person that came into your church and said, look, I've been living a homosexual lifestyle, but I want to turn from that and I want to uh, live a Christian life. Tell me what I should do. You would counsel that person and say, well, you've got to give up your homosexual lifestyle. That's a non-negotiable. You've got to stop looking at homosexual porn. You have to stop 
having homosexual experiences or whatever, or a heroin addict, would you counsel that person that wanted to turn from that? Is that what I'm trying to say, do is show you these bad sins that you think are bad and that you know that the correct thing to counsel that person is no, you can't go back and do a little bit of heroin every once in a while. And how much different is that than adultery? So if the premise is true that Jesus really does think that looking at a woman with lust in your heart is the same thing as adultery, then now you've got to deal with that in the same way you would counsel somebody who's doing heroin or anything else that you think is bad. All right, let me transition to telling you about my personal experience with this so that you can know that it's no different than any other common sin and it's got no more power than any other common sin except I would say that it's probably something that you've done your whole life. If you had been smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for since you were 18 or whatever, 16, and now you're 40, it's going to be hard at first to kick that habit. There's just so much dopamine and triggers. I should back up and say, initially, when I was saved many, many years ago, I also did the same thing. I didn't know any theology at the time. I quit drinking and smoking pot and then was shortly after that convicted to stop watching pornography and then to stop altogether with looking at other women besides my girlfriend at the time, who was now my wife. But, um, And I didn't really even understand why. I, I look back and see now that I was being led that way to, to walk in the Spirit, that it was the Spirit itself that was saying here are some things that I don't want you to do. And I was obedient to that. And in a similar way with drinking, that lasted for, I want to say about three years of me being obedient and walking in the spirit, not only not looking at pornography, but not looking at uh, other women with lust in my uh, heart. And I didn't think anything of it. It got easier. It was complete victory. By the time I ended up Uh, looking at pornography again. I was already married. It had been maybe a year or something after we had been married. And I remember that it wasn't even that great of a temptation at the time. Like I said, I had been delivered from it. I had been freed from it. But I gave in, in part, the same reason I gave in uh, with alcohol around the same time. I dabbled in it uh, because I believed in once saved, always saved. And that there really was no reason for me not to. So to make a long story short, uh, that opening of that door led to more and more of it. It never really was all that bad. I mean, pornography and sexual lust was never, I don't think my main sin, alcohol and drugs were always my main thing. So And because of that, I was able to not judge myself too hard because I could compare myself with others who did it much worse. And I could say, well, I'm not that bad. And then I did the same thing that everybody does. They, um, they give themselves a a kind of worldly rule book of like, I don't look at this kind of pornography, or I don't look at a woman in this uh, circumstance, therefore I am better. I have a little bit of virtue even and that I have restraint in these areas and these rules that I made up for myself. But the main point I want to say is that that more or less continued until the modern era is when I uh, repented from alcohol again, and at the same time did the same thing with uh, making another covenant with my eyes. And so this is where I remember it a lot more clearly and can maybe help you a little bit more with the specifics of what to expect. So as I described in my testimony recently, the power that I was given was immediately noticeable with alcohol. 
it became quite clear to me that the Holy Spirit was now in my life in a real way. And just like that first time, I wasn't thinking about this, that that I was also going to quit uh, pornography and, and make a covenant with my eyes at the same time. But just like that first time, it was almost like, hey, do this as well, like a suggestion that I should also do. And I, I don't know if it was a couple weeks later or whatever, but after I quit drinking and realized I've got all this power um, that I also decided, okay, this is it. I'm never going to look at a woman with lust again. So as I said, I did have power. I already knew that. Uh, I knew that something had changed, that the Holy Spirit was uh, helping me and that I could use that power for this task. That was something that was important to know. I will say that for you, if especially if this is your main thing, sexual immorality, then it may be that this is the moment that you get the power. Like for me, it was actually deciding that, okay, I am going to drop the alcohol no matter what. I'm never going to drink alcohol again. I am not going to hell for alcohol. I'm going to follow the Lord and do what he wants to do. It was at that moment that I got the power. For me, it was getting rid of that master. And then the Holy Spirit immediately said, hey, you should probably deal with the pornography thing too. But for you, if your main thing is sexual immorality, it probably won't start. You probably will not get the power until you decide, okay, that's it for me. I believe you. I believe that this issue will send me to hell. I don't want to go to hell. I am going to quit pornography and I'm going to quit looking at other women with lust in my heart. It might be for you that moment that you get the power. But whatever, my point is, once you have that power, it's still not perfectly easy. I think it's a little bit harder because we have given into it for so long without being checked that there are a lot of triggers and dopamine things. And then Satan is certainly there too. So I noticed this right away. Like I remember one time I was riding my motorcycle uh, and I was going down this area where they were like uh, tubing, you know, um, and some woman in a bikini or no, it was like a bunch of girls in a bikini in bikinis walking down the road. And I remember like, I, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. And I remember passing by and it was almost like being yelled at, but that like either by Satan or by my uh, subconscious mind or whatever, like, you can't miss this. What an opportunity this is just, you have to do it. You, you know, it was almost like this idea of missing an opportunity, you, you know, like, it was like a real sorrow. It's like an overwhelming, maybe guys will know what I'm talking about, like an overwhelming sorrow to not look. And that, kind of like take a deep breath, kind of like that was difficult. There were a few of those early on. And what's different now is that there aren't. I've just had a few things the last uh, maybe two or three weeks that I noticed like, wow, that would have been a difficult one to resist a while back. And it would have been, you know, also in, uh, been accompanied by that same sort of, oh, no, the, I don't get to do do that, you know, feeling. And so I have realized over the last few weeks that the, the, the look, not looking at women, and I should say this too, the not looking at women, women is such a strong battle because that's the, where the real battle is that pornography is like a completely distant memory. 
Like there's like I would have to fail many, 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 many times at the not looking at women thing, which I haven't to even break down enough barriers to where I would look at pornography. I mean, it seems like that's just never going to happen. And that's why I wanted to wait to do this podcast that I was a little bit further down the road with the covenant with my eyes to make sure that it had gotten to the same place as the alcohol in terms of the spiritual freedom, because the alcohol had gotten to a place where I recognized I'm done with this. Like I don't ever have to go back to that. If I don't choose to, the desires are not there. I can walk past uh, a million bars. I can be in all the situations it's done. If I ever go back to alcohol, it will be for some separate uh, reason, some eyes wide open choice. And because it took a little bit more, uh, because as I said, so many triggers with the, uh, not looking at women and because it's a more common thing. I mean, you're, if I'm still on Twitter, for example, I mean, I'm going to hit, be hit pretty regularly with temptation that I now have to avoid. So it was a slower process to get to that place, but it has now gotten to that place where I know if I ever go back to, uh, to looking at women with lust or pornography or whatever, it will be the exact same sort of choice. I have been freed now. And that's the main thing I want to convey. I I will say, because this is where I think a lot of men are saying, look, it's everywhere. It's all the time. This is why it's impossible in their minds is because it is always on Twitter or, or some ad or it's everywhere. You're constantly bombarded with temptation every day. Women are everywhere. Maybe you work in a situation where, you know, there's so much temptation. And I remember actually when the first time I did this, I was working at uh, Rosetta Stone in the mall um, in some, you know, location where, you know, beautiful women were walking by every day. And I thought this is going to be difficult, but the same thing I'm telling you, yes, it's different with women because unlike with alcohol, people aren't just like shoving beers in my face, like 30 times a day that I have to resist. But it's, you do get to the point where you recognize, no, this is, does not have the same power as it did before. And now I'm done. I am free. Uh, and I, if I make this choice to do it again, it will be an eyes wide open choice. So I'm finally back to the place that I was before. That is, I have been given freedom over the sins that have mastered me in my life. A great gift. I don't have to drink. I don't have to uh, watch pornography anymore. I'm done. The thing that is different than the first time, though, is now I have a reason, a protection to hold what I've got, to hold on to that freedom when temptation, like strong temptation comes. I think that's what uh, Ephesians 6 talks about, the evil day. I think that when that day comes, now I can stand where before I don't think I had any ability to stand. I had no protection against the evil day because then I... I believed in once saved, always saved. And so when Satan had a really good reason to drink and a really good reason to look at pornography, I looked at my theology, which said, look, there's literally no downside to this. I mean, worst case scenario, you could lose a few bonus points in heaven, but this is, you know, some cool sin right here. So there was nothing holding me back, not a modicum of fear in modern evangelical teaching. 
what am I afraid of? Am I afraid that if I have a beer or a glass of wine with dinner that I'll go to hell? Am I afraid that if I just once decide to look at a woman with lust in my heart that I will go to hell? No, I don't think it's that easy. But I do know for sure that doing that, giving up my streak, as it were, giving up, uh, you know, going back into a cheat day, that willful sin will open a door. It will open a door. And just like every other time in my life, without exception, that I've done a cheat thing like that, it will lead to more. It always is a the beginning of the downward spiral. The question is, how long does that downward spiral last? Because while you're in that willful sinning downward spiral, you may die. Or I don't know when it is that you go from saved to not saved. But I do know that as soon as you make that choice to go back into it, you've opened up a different timeline, if you will. And you could eventually repent and get back onto the place where you never do it again. Or you could spiral until you die, which could be a car wreck or it could be an old age. I also think another reason not to dabble with sin, especially if you know all this, is that it can open up really big doors. If you know that your master says not to do something and you say, I'm going to do it anyway, and you know that he said, but I'll send you to hell if you do it. You know that hell's the consequence now. You know that your master says not to do it, and yet you do it anyway. Then the willful nature of that sin is more severe than before. And severe sin opens up bigger doors. So I would say that there is a danger here too, kind of like Judas. You know, Satan entered him at the moment he decided to betray Christ. Is there a moment of no return? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, quite frankly. I would guess that there's like some kind of time period and it depends on your heart or whatever, but it's a game you don't want to play. You don't want to play the how many times can I sin before I hit the point of no return or die in my sins or whatever. So I don't think it's as simple as you sin once without confessing your sin, then you're going to hell. But it is a great sin to presume on that righteousness so that you can sin. Let's move on to talking about the book of Job. It's widely considered to be the oldest book in the Bible, chronologically speaking. There's no mention of like the law of Moses in the book. There are some other clues that um, this was a very, very early in the timeline of history, probably maybe around Abraham's time. It says he is from the land of Uz, which is... Uh, probably around the land of Edom today. There's some debate about whether Job was even a Jew or maybe he was a Gentile. But nevertheless, what we do know about Job for real is that he is righteous. The book opens up like this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Okay, so we know that he was blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. And we see that God, in his conference with Satan in Job 1.8, is probably where we get that line. It says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For, for there is none, no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So whoever wrote this book 
was able to give Job that title because of this quote from God, and they seem to have been very careful to keep it exactly like that. Then Satan answered in, uh, the Lord and says, does Job fear God for nothing? A couple things here. The response from Satan is talking about the fear that Job has for God as if that is the virtuous thing. We think of that in our modern times as fear being the absolute worst thing. Never, ever say anything about fear. And yet that is the central thing that is almost equated with righteousness. And it happens to also be, you might be able to tell, the sort of central focus of what I'm trying to say and what I think historical Christianity is, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because it's the only thing that we can have to make us um, to make us turn away from sin. And this is a really instructive book in that regard. Because what do I mean, fear of God? Do you fear God that he can destroy your life? Because that's one kind of fear of God. But that can't be the truth here in Job, because Job's life gets as destroyed as a life can get. And Job says still, I mean, People are asking him to sin, and he's like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to do anything. I don't care what happens to me. I'm still not going to sin. And so it can't be that his fear of God was that God would give him some earthly punishment. So what other kind of fear is there? The same kind of fear that I'm telling you that you need to have and is the only real way that anybody is ever going to truly defeat sin. It has to start with fear of hell. And I'll develop in a minute that Job was, in fact, knowledgeable and afraid of hell. But first, I want to develop something that I think is really interesting. So Job is a righteous man in a lot of different ways. In the course of the book, it's a hugely long book, which takes the format of his quote-unquote friends saying things to him, and him responding to those friends. And the friends all have a pretty simplistic theology. They know about God. They, um, But they're telling Job that, look, all this bad stuff has happened to you. You must have sinned. Because we know, it is known, that if you do good things, good things will happen. And if you do wicked things, then you know, bad things will befall you. And since you have had bad things befall you, you must have sinned. And Job, who, this is, I think, the thing that a lot of people miss. If Job really was living this life, and he he goes through it in the book, you know, he talks about the kinds of things that he did. You know, he was really a very rich man, and he was very supportive of the poor in the village. Obviously, I'm talking about the covenant of the eyes, but he goes through other things. And it's interesting why he even has to talk about these things. I don't even think that Job would have in his nature started listing out the things that he did, because that would be almost like prideful. If he didn't have to, he wasn't forced to by these friends who are saying, no, you you must ascend. And Job was like, guys, I really don't think I did. I did this and this. I've been really, really serious about not sinning for a long time. And I don't think I did. I really don't. I mean, he must have been so concentrating on the sinning thing to be singled out by God himself in the first place 
that he had to be like, I don't think so. And in the course of this discourse from his friend saying, look, it's really simple. If you do bad stuff, bad stuff will happen. And if you do good stuff, good stuff will happen. And Job has to almost go through this, the, the, the facts of life to these people. Job knows something that they don't. That's clear in a lot of cases. But what I'm trying, for example, he knows that it's nuanced, that the wicked do prosper. Sometimes nothing bad happens to them. They live their whole lives and they prosper and they do wickedly and they prosper. And he's trying to tell them sometimes that happens. And if that happens, that the wicked can prosper their whole lives without being judged, then certainly the reverse is true, that sometimes somebody can be punished and bad things can happen to good people as well. And the people that are listening to him as friends, they say things like this. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They're as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? You know, uh, so they're saying, what can you know? What do you know, Job? Or in Job 15, 8, 9, what do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? This is after them saying, do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? So Job is like, I don't know. I'm just telling you that sometimes bad things happen to good people and sometimes nothing bad happens to to bad people. And I'm telling you that I haven't sinned. Eventually, at the end of the book, when God speaks out of the whirlwind, he validates Job's view of the world as opposed to the friend's view. And he says of the friends, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So we've got a lot of things going on here in terms of we forced Job to describe the nature of his righteousness all throughout the book. We, we learn what righteous kind of deeds he was doing. Almost he, he would have never as a righteous man said these things out loud anyway, but now he's forced to say, well, no, I never lie. I never look at women. I, uh, I support the poor. I'm really serious. You know, he, he goes through all this stuff because his friends are saying, you sin. He's like, I don't think so. Here's the things that I do. And at the beginning of the book, we have God validating all of that. He says, you know, you are, this is a guy who is blameless, who fears the Lord, who shuns evil and the whole thing. So we have as much as you can be hermeneutically consistent, a proof that a person was truly righteous and not just old covenant mosaic law righteous, but really seeking righteousness and was had a stamp of approval from God, which is a really big problem for the Calvinist view of uh, total depravity, especially considering that this guy did not have the Holy Spirit. But what does the Bible say that he does have in abundance? Fear. So let's talk about what did Job fear? So in the course of him explaining to his friends why their theology is bad, he explains that the wicked sometimes don't get judged in this life. Job knows this somehow. We're not told how he knows any of this stuff, but he knows that sometimes the wicked don't get judged in this life, but that they will get judged in the next life. Now, Job knows a lot about Sheol. Sheol is the what we sometimes refer to as Hades. The concept of hell really is the same pretty much from in every culture or certainly the Greeks and uh, um, you have a lot of crossover in the Middle East and in Hebrew and, and whatever. 
But Sheol is the abode of the dead. Both the good and the bad go there. But there is a great separation between those two places in Sheol. So the good go to what is commonly referred to in the New Testament, or commonly it's referred to once as Abraham's bosom or paradise, also centrally located in the earth. And then you have the bad part of Sheol where the wicked dead are punished. And, you know, there's sometimes people say that there isn't a lot of development of that in the Old Testament, but I think that there is. I, I think that Job knows about it. Listen to a couple things that Job knows. Job 24, 19 through 20. Drought and heat consume the snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. So Job knows that hell is hot for sinners. Now he knows when he speaks of Sheol in just sort of the abode of the dead, kind of like just dead uh, way, he knows about that too. He knows that that's a place that he will go, which is a paradise kind of thing, although he doesn't really develop that that much, just sort of like a neutral place, let's call it. But he knows that the wicked will go to a place that's hot. Further in Job 24, 19 through 20, it says, a mother will forget him, speaking of the righteous, the, the wicked dead, the worm feeds sweetly till he is no longer remembered and wickedness will be broken like a tree. So wicked people are judged, worms feed on them, Heat consumes them like snow waters. That's what Sheol is like for the sinner. So Job knows that if you're a sinner, you're going to get burned. You're going to be broken. Worms are going to feed on you. It's going to be... Now, these are New Testament concepts, and Job knows about them. Here's another big one about Sheol that Job knows, and nobody else seems to know it until the New Covenant. Job Job 26, 5 through 6. The departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. The departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no cover covering. Abaddon. Abaddon is mentioned in Revelation, of course, as you know, a, the king of the locust-like creatures that are a, a let loose at the fifth, fifth trumpet. So Abaddon is some kind of demonic entity, probably, that is in Sheol, and Job knows it. Now, how could Job know this stuff? I could go on. I could say, and I want to point out a couple of things. Remember when I quoted his friend saying, what, has God revealed this to you? How do you know this stuff, Job? But Job knows about it. And I would say there's a couple different things that could be happening here. First, I think it's interesting that Almost every culture knows about hell to some degree. Isn't it interesting that the Greeks or the Egyptians, they basically all know that hell's a bad place and that, that your sins will get you there. That's, you know, they twisted it and there's some some later changes and stuff. But hell is a pretty pretty common concept. You know, ancient Chinese people know that the bad people get burned alive in hell. And that's something that I think you can get from people I don't know. There's a couple different things happening here. First, I would say you've got the book of Enoch, right? So Enoch was seventh from Adam. We see that this book, this prophecy that Jude calls him a prophet, uh, seventh from Adam. So very early on, way before Abraham and everything else, Enoch told us a whole bunch of stuff that's not in the can- the, you know, the Bible proper about hell. And I don't think it gives this information, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that 
it could be that Job knows that information was available in his world somewhere. And it could be that he knew it through good theology, basically. He had access to some kind of stuff like that. I wonder sometimes, though, because of Job's super serious nature and the fact that he's telling us, I know about hell, I know what happens to the wicked spirits, and I'm not going there. I don't care what happens to me here. Whatever happens to me here is not worth me sinning and going there. And I am reminded of those hell testimonies that I watched, where I believe that God gave people a vision of hell. I don't know if they went there or it was just a vision or, you know, just something to whatever. I don't know how many of them are real or what percentage of them are real, whatever. But those people, they're done with sinning because they saw something that to them, that there is nothing in the world worth going there. It's like Jesus said, it really is better for you to pluck out your eye or cut off your arm. That's not hyperbole, as so many preachers are fond of saying. It's absolutely true. It would be way better for you to do that than go to hell. It's really bad. And somehow or another, Job knows it's really bad. And he says to himself, I've got fear of God. And he's pointed out by God himself as saying, this guy, he's got some fear of God. And so that's a good place to end this podcast because most of the problems that people will have with the first part of this podcast are they're saying that I'm being too severe, that I'm causing people to fear, and you're telling people to be afraid of hell as an impetus to not look at women with lust in your heart. And the book of Job is a book that is written, I think, to commend a man who had fear, not of what God would do to him in this life, but of what God would do to him in the next life. And as a result of that, he led a very uniquely righteous life that God, before the Holy Spirit, which is pretty intense, and God says, look at this guy, and confirms to Job later and during the the summary of the book that he was right, that he wasn't lying when he said he was righteous, which is, again, a really big argument to the Calvinists who believe in the uh, depravity of man. So what do you do with Job in that case? But anyway, okay, I digress. I hope you made it this far and uh, I will talk to you later. Bye.